by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Morning. Welcome to the Sati Center. Today we're going to talk about views and opinions, right ones and wrong ones. My name is Lee Brasington. Uh, I said we're going to talk about. I'm not about to sit up here and lecture for seven hours. Um, but I do have some information I will present and hopefully it will spark some discussion. Mostly what I want to do is take a look at right view and wrong view as outlined in the Pali Canon, in the suttas. There were a number of views that were shall we say, in vogue at the time of the Buddha. And so we'll start off by looking at some of these views. And then we'll take a look at what the Buddha described as right view. And then we'll take a look at a couple of suttas where monks are found holding wrong views. So that's the general outline of the day. First off, I want you to Think about the possibility that you might be holding a fixed view of some sort. Uh, some sort of view about, I don't know, the election from a week ago. Some sort of view about um, the social scene. Equality or lack of equality. Uh, equal opportunity or lack of equal opportunity. Uh, I don't know. When I was growing up, people had views and opinions about Ford versus Chevy. I suppose today it's uh, Honda versus Toyota, or at least foreign versus domestic, right? Um, there are numerous views and opinions about sports. I mean, who in your opinion do you think should win the Most Valuable Player Awards that are announced next week? Maybe you don't care about sports. Maybe you're more into uh, cow's milk versus soy milk, All right? Paper versus plastic. There's lots of uh, arenas in which to hold views and opinions. Of course, the most interesting one, the one that the Buddha was most interested in talking about were uh, spiritual views and opinions. Do you have any of those? I mean, like, do you have an opinion about whether the Buddha was a historical person or just someone mythological? Do you have an opinion about uh, whether it's possible to get enlightened? Do you have an opinion about what is enlightenment? Do you have uh, some sort of view about what happens after death? By not holding to fixed views. The verse I quoted is the closing verse of the Metta Sutta. And basically sort of outlines how to get enlightened, right? 
By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, gets enlightened, is not born again into this world. By not holding to fixed views, having a pure heart, having clear vision, being freed from sense desires. These are the four requirements you, you should, could say. So today we're going to look at the first of them, the by not holding to fixed views. The Metta Sutta comes from the Sutta Nipata. Now, the Buddha's teachings were an oral tradition for some three to five hundred years after his death, and they weren't written down for quite some time. During this period, they were recited. And I'm sure you're all familiar with the game of telephone where I whisper something to one person and they whisper it to another and it goes around the room and it's completely changed. Well, if you play telephone for 300 years, there does tend to be a tendency for corruption to squeak in. So we could assume that the suttas that were written down earliest had less of a chance to uh, become corrupted during the oral transmission period. Well, the scholars all agree that the Sutta Nipata represents a layer that was written down earlier than the bulk of what we have as the suttas. They say this due to the fact that the Pali in there is somewhat different from the Pali that is found through most of the canon. Like most languages, Pali underwent, you know, evolution over time. The English that we speak today is not the same as the English that was spoken at the beginning of the 20th century, let alone the English that was spoken at the beginning of the 16th century, right? So there's enough markers in there to be able to date sort of a on a general basis as to when the suttas were written down. So the Sutta Nipata, the scholars all agree, was written down very early and probably represents the closest that we have to what the Buddha actually was saying, the the stuff that had at least the least time to become corrupted. One of the overriding themes of the Sutta Nipata is not holding to fixed views. Uh, this teaching about not holding views and opinions occurs a number of times in there. Uh, there's a, uh, a phrase or a little paragraph that appears quite often. Um, it shows up in the Sutta Nipata and it shows up in a number of other places. It goes something like this. Uh, people remain addicted to wrangling disputations such as, you don't understand this doctrine and discipline. I do. How could you understand this doctrine and discipline? Your way is all wrong. Mine is right. I am consistent. You aren't. You said last what you should have said first, and you said first what you should have said last. What you took so long to think up has been refuted. Your argument has been overthrown. You're defeated. 
Go on, save your doctrine. Get out of it if you can. Right? And the Buddha cautions against getting involved in these sort of arguments. He says that basically they're a waste of time. That if you're trying to hammer out exactly what's right, well, obviously you're not actually sitting down and meditating. You're not doing the practice. Now, I definitely am in favor of study and I'm definitely in favor of discussion. But if you're spending your time arguing, then you're probably not really getting a clear picture of what's going on. And furthermore, if you're spending your time arguing some viewpoint, you're probably becoming more and more attached to it. And it's holding to fixed views that gets us into trouble. As we'll see later on, the Buddha doesn't recommend not having any views, but holding to fixed views. One of my favorite characters in all of the suttas is a wanderer by the name of Vajagota. Vajagota apparently belonged to some other sect. And he shows up in, I think, about a half a dozen different suttas with questions for the Buddha. Many of the suttas are answers to questions. Somebody came to see the Buddha and had posed a question. And the Buddha gave the discourse. Uh, one of these is actually entitled Tuananda, although the central character is Vachagota. Then the wanderer Vachagota went to the Blessed One and on arrival exchanged courteous greetings with him. After an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, he sat down to one side. And he, as he was sitting there, he asked the Blessed One, Now then, Venerable Gotama, is there a self? When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Well then, is there no self? A second time, the Blessed One was silent. Then Vajagota, the wanderer, got up from his seat and left. Uh, interesting Dharma talk, yes? Then not long after Vajagota, the wanderer, had left, Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, why, Lord, did the Blessed One not ask when asked a question by Vachagota the Wanderer? Ananda, if I, being asked by Vachagota the Wanderer, if there's a self, were to answer, there is a self, that would be conforming with those priests and contemplatives who are exponents of eternalism. The view that there is an eternal, unchanging soul. Now, we have to remember that the self that is being talked about in the suttas is not exactly what we would refer to as the psychological ego, but more like the soul. If you look at the so-called second sermon, the Discourse on Not-Self, which the Buddha gave to the five ascetics in the Deer Park at Varanasi a few weeks after he had joined up with them again after becoming enlightened, the kind of self that he's talking about is one that is permanent and happy, right? Permanent and not experiencing dukkha. 
So the self that the wanderer of Vachagota is inquiring after could actually be perhaps better translated from our standpoint as a soul. So is there a soul? And the Buddha doesn't say anything. Is there no soul? And the Buddha doesn't say anything. So if the Buddha were to say there is a soul, then he would be conforming with the recluses and Brahmins who are exponents of eternalism. That is, there is an eternal soul. If being asked by Vachigo to the wanderer, is there no self? I were to answer, there is no self. That would be conforming with those priests and contemplatives who are exponents of annihilationism. The view that death is the annihilation of consciousness. If there's no soul, then when you die, that's it. It's finished, gone, done with. If I, being asked by Vachigo to the wanderer, if there is a self, were to answer there is a self, would that be keeping with the arising of knowledge that all phenomena are not self? Now remember, the Buddha taught not self. He didn't teach no self. He said, everywhere you look, that's not self. And at this point, when he's actually pinned down, you know, is there a self or isn't there a self? He didn't answer. So Ananda says, no, that wouldn't be good. Uh, it wouldn't be in keeping with the teaching of Anatta if he was to say that there is a self. And if being asked by Vachigo to the wanderer, if there is no self, I were to answer there is no self, the bewildered Vachigota would have become even more bewildered. Does the self I used to have now not exist? All right, so... Basically, the Buddha realized that any answer he gave to the question, is there a self or is there no self, was going to cause some sort of problem. Now, this is the basic view or opinion that wanderers and Brahmins at the time of the Buddha struggled over. Is there a soul? If there's a soul, what do you do to ensure that you know, it's eternally happy. Or if there's no soul, what the heck are we doing here? What, what are we supposed to do? All right. These are the basic teachings that the recluses and Brahmins would put out. So this one from Vachagota is the uh, sort of the very basic question. And the Buddha didn't feel compelled that he had to give an answer. You know, if somebody comes up to you and they ask you a question about something in politics, you know, was the election fair or something like that, you might feel compelled to give an answer. Uh, it's very interesting. I, I go to the CNN website occasionally to check out, you know, what's being fed to the masses. And they always have a little poll down there at the bottom. You know, and some of the questions, yeah. Like you want to, you want to really, you know, punch up your answer. But a lot of them are something like, uh, "Is Bin Laden dead? Alive and living in Pakistan? Alive and living in Afghanistan? Alive and living somewhere else? That's your choices, right? You don't know. Let's face it, you really don't know. You haven't got a clue, right? But." You've got to have a view or an opinion, right? So you punch one of these things and so you can see the results, right? We live in a culture that, you know, very much 
want you to have some sort of view or opinion on anything. When all the polls were coming out before the election, you know, it was like 50% thinking this way and 45% this way and just 5% didn't have an opinion. Right? Well, that seemed really weird. How could they not have an opinion? You know, you've got to have an opinion. I mean, if you're a thinking person, it's obvious. You're going to have an opinion, well, like my opinion, right? (laughs) Yet, not having an opinion is often the right answer. There are some things that, you know, the question just really doesn't lend itself to having an opinion, given the way that it was asked. And so, giving an answer doesn't really work very well. As I mentioned, there are uh, a large number of different uh, teachers that were around that were giving various views and opinions. Uh, And in the second sutta in the Dignitaya, the fruits of the spiritual life, uh, we have uh, six teachers and their views and opinions described. The first one is Peruna Kasapa. These six teachers occur in a number of suttas, and Peruna Kasapa is always mentioned first. We could assume that perhaps he was one of the more revered teachers. He had a bigger following. He was older, something like that. Something made him wind up first. And his teaching was... By the doer or instigator of a thing, by one who cuts or causes to be cut, by one who burns or causes to be burned, by one who causes grief and weariness, by one who agitates or causes agitation, who causes life to be taken or that which is not given to be taken, commits burglary, carries off booty, commits robbery, lies in ambush, commits adultery, tells lies, no evil is done. Okay, this is one of the types of views and opinions that were held at the time of the Buddha. In other words, that there were no karmic consequences. That you could do whatever you wanted to do. Didn't matter. If with a razor sharp wheel one were to make of this earth one single mass and heap of flesh, there would be no evil as a result of that. No evil would accrue. If one were to go along the south bank of the Ganges, killing, slaying, cutting off, casting, uh, causing to be cut, burning, or causing to be burnt, there would be no evil as a result of that. No evil would accrue. Or if one were to go along the north bank of the Ganges, giving, causing to be given, sacrificing, causing to be sacrificed, there would be no merit, and as a result, there would be no merit. No merit would accrue. In giving self-control, abstinence, and telling the truth, there is no merit and no merit accrues. Now, we don't really find too many teachings like this, at least mainstream today. There might be little occults and pockets of it. But this was one of the teachings, the the fact that actions didn't have results. Perhaps one of the reasons that Prunakasapa was mentioned first is because this particular view or opinion was considered particularly pernicious, uh, quite harmful, and quite damaging. But this is one of the views 
one of the opinions that was held. The second of these teachers is Makali Gosala, Makali of the Cowshed. Uh, he was the founder of the Ajivakas. The Ajivakas was another religion at the time of the Buddha, or founded at the time of the Buddha. And it existed up until the Middle Ages, so for, let's say, about 1,500 years. We don't know much about most of the other teachers, but uh, this one we know a little bit. And he said, there is no cause or condition for the defilement of beings. They are defiled without cause or condition. There is no cause or condition for the purification of beings. They are purified without cause or condition. There is no self-power or other power. There is no power in humans, no strength or force or vigor or exertion. All beings, all living things, all creatures, all that, that lives is without control, without power or strength. They experience the fixed course of pleasure and pain through the six kinds of rebirth. There are 1,400,000 principal sorts of birth and 6,000 others and again 600. There are 500 kinds of karma, five kinds, three kinds and half karma. 62 paths, 62 intermediary eons, six classes of human beings, eight stages of... This guy had it all laid out. Right? It goes on and on and basically you just wander around through samsara until without you doing anything, you're eventually liberated. So it's basically fatalism, right? You're, you're on the merry-go-round, the horses go up and down, you know, and sometimes you fall off and then you get on another horse and you just stay on the merry-go-round and eventually you get off. Uh, it's not quite, uh, it's, at least it's not phrased quite as uh, egregiously as Peruna Kasapa's. But again, there's no real action here. You, your behavior doesn't have any results. Your behavior is just simply wandering through samsara. And you will continue, whether you do good or evil, until things come to fruition and make an end of it. So this is another of the types of views and opinions that were encountered. The next one is Ajita Keskambali. And he says, there is nothing given, bestowed, offered, and sacrificed. There is no fruit or result of good or bad deeds. There is not this world or the next. There is no mother or father. There are no spontaneously risen beings. There is no... There are... In this world, no ascetics or Brahmins who have attained or who have perf perfectly practiced, who proclaim the world, this world and the next, having realized themselves by their own super knowledge. This human being is composed of the four great elements, and when one dies, the earth part reverts to the earth, the water to the water, the fire to the fire, the air to the air, and the faculties pass away into space. So he was a nihilist. You know, what you see is what you get. There's this body. When it dies, dead. That's it. Um, again, he didn't really have much dealings with karma. You know, there, there's if you do something bad and get away with it, well, there's no repercussions. If you do something bad and they kill you, well, you're going to die anyhow. That's that. The next of the these guys is Pakuda Kachana. And he says, 
These seven things are not made or of a kind to be made, uncreated, unproductive, barren, false, stable as a column. They do not shake, do not change, obstruct one another, nor are they able to cause one another pleasure or pain. What are the seven? The earth body, the water body, the fire body, the air body, pleasure and pain in the life principle. These seven are not made. Thus there is neither slayer nor slain, neither hearer nor proclaimer, neither knower nor cause of knowing. And whoever cuts off a man's head with a sharp sword does not deprive anyone of life. He just inserts the blade in the intervening space between these seven bodies. Okay, so he's, again, a materialist and basically says, you know, it's just atoms floating around and nothing more than that. Uh, Again, not much in the way of karma. The next teacher is Nignath Nataputa. This is the founder of the Jain religion, which is a religion which is still in existence, principally in India. Uh, He's known as Mahavira, and he was an older contemporary of the Buddha. And what's given here is not actually the real tenets of the Jain religion. It's sort of a punning way of describing some of the teachings of the Jains. It says, um, here uh, a Nignath, a, a Jain, is bound by fourfold restraint. What for? He is curbed by all curbs, enclosed by all curbs, cleared of all curbs, and claimed by all curbs. As far as a Jain is bound by this full, full, fourfold restraint, then the Jain is called the self-perfected, self-controlled, and self-established. Basically, what is being said here is that the Jains did have a moral conduct. In fact, the Jains today are morally very upright people. The strict Jains will take a little brush and when they walk, they'll sweep the walk in front of them to sweep away any insects so that they won't step on them. They'll wear a mask so that they won't breathe in an insect. I mean, they're very much against doing any damage at all. They take it to an even deeper strain of restraint than is found in Buddhism. Buddhism, basically, if you accidentally step on an insect and kill it, you don't incur the same karma as if you intentionally kill it. Whereas with the Jains, if you kill anything, that's particularly bad. So now we have the question is, given that we know what was given for the Jain religion and what's shows up in the sutta is quite different from what is really taught. How accurate are the descriptions of the other religions? It could be that, you know, over time, the other religions were made more fun of or something. But apparently there were materialists. There were people who believed in fate. And there were a, a number of teachings that basically said there are no karmic consequences. And then the last one, Sanjay Bithaputta. And he says, if you ask me, is there another world? If I thought so, I would say so, but I don't think so. I don't say it is so, and I don't say otherwise. I don't say it is not, and I don't say, and I don't not say it is not. If you ask me, is there another world? Both, neither. Is there not another world? Both, neither. Is there fruit and result of good and bad deeds? 
Isn't there both, neither? Does an enlightened being exist after death or not, or both or neither? He goes on with his endless equivocation. In other words, this guy didn't have any opinion at all. If you ask him a question, he wouldn't give you an answer. He would tell you that, well, I don't say that, but then again, I don't not say that. This way, he was never wrong. Um, so, these are some of the views and opinions that you can find floating around. The most common, shall we say, uh, description or you could almost say questionnaire that was floating around is one that apparently was used to decide exactly what sort of teachings any teacher was given. And if we go back to our friend Bhachagota, um, that first sutta, by the way, was from uh, the Samyutta Nikaya, uh, number 44-10. And this next one, is from the Majjhima Nikaya. There are three suttas to, Maj- to Vajagota in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's 71, 72, and 73. And this is the middle one. So Vajagota again comes to see the Buddha. And he salutes him and sits down to one side. And he says, How is it, Master Gotama? Does Master Gotama hold the view the world is eternal, only this is true and everything else is wrong? Bacha, I do not hold this view. The world is eternal. Only this is true. Anything else is wrong. How then does Mastic go to hold the view? The world is not eternal. Only this is true. Everything else is wrong. I don't hold that view. Does Mastic go to hold the view? The world is finite. Don't hold that view. Infinite. Don't hold that view. The soul the same as the body. Don't hold that view. The soul different from the body. Don't hold that view. The Tathagata exists after death. Tathagata is the word that the Buddha used to refer to himself. It could be translated the one thus come or the one thus gone. And the translation would depend on the A in the middle. How much emphasis you gave it. Uh, I've forgotten whether it's long means gone or short means gone, but anyhow. If you read the suttas and know a little bit of Pali, you find that they're absolutely full of puns. And so I would imagine that the Buddha, when he used the word Tathagata, managed to pronounce it in such a way that you couldn't tell whether he was saying thus come or thus gone. Now, of course, we can't tell that because we only have the written version of it. But the word Tathagata obviously predates the Buddha. He didn't make it up to refer to himself because there's this questionnaire floating around. And the, the what seventh question is, does a Tathagata exist after death? Does an enlightened being exist after death? Don't hold that view. Does an enlightened being not exist after death? Don't hold that view. Does an enlightened being both exist and not exist after death? Don't hold that, be, that view. Does an enlightened being neither exist nor not exist after death? Don't hold that view. By then, Purvachigota uh, is 
a little confused. How is it then, Master Gotama, when Master Gotama has asked each of these sin questions, he replies, I do not hold that view. What danger does Master Gotama see in that he does not take up any of these views? All right, so once again, Vajagota has come to the Buddha with some questions, and the Buddha's not giving him satisfactory answers, but he's phrased it slightly differently. Before, he phrased it such that, give me a yes or no answer. You know, have you stopped beating your wife? Right? And the Buddha didn't say anything. Right? But this time, it's like, do you believe this? Nah, I don't believe that. But he didn't believe anything. I mean, in general, if you would go to one of these six uh, recluses that I mentioned earlier and ask them these six questions, they'd all give you an answer. Yeah, I believe that. No, I don't believe that. Well, except for this last guy, Sanjay, he'd say, well, if you asked me that, I wouldn't, you know. He would equivocate. He was an eel wriggler. So, uh, what danger does Master Gotama see that he does not take up any of these views? Vacha, the speculative view that the world is eternal is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a vacillation of views, a fetter of views. It is beset by dukkha, by vexation, by despair, and by fever. And it does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. Okay, so this is what's wrong with holding fixed views. They are a thicket, a wilderness, a contortion, a vacillation, a fetter. They are beset by suffering, vexation, despair, fever, and furthermore, holding views does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. All these views and opinions that we have, paper or plastic, Honda or Toyota, Carrier Bush, they tend to lead to vexation, to confusion, to thickets, to arguments, to proclaiming ourselves right. But they don't tend to lead to dispassion, disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, peace, liberation, enlightenment. Okay? For each of these ten questions, the Buddha goes on to say that each of these speculative views leads to problems and doesn't lead one in the right direction. After this is said, Vachagota says, Then does Master Gota hold any view at all? Vacha, views are something the Tathagata has put away. For the Tathagata, Vacha, has seen this. Such is material form, such is its origin, such is its disappearance. Such are Vedana, such is their origin, such is their disappearance. Such is perception, such is its origin, such is its disappearance. Such are formation, such is their origin, such is their disappearance. Such is consciousness, such is origin, such is its disappearance. Therefore I say, with the destruction fading away, cessation giving up and relinquishment of all conceivings, all excogitations, all eye-making, mind-making, and the underlying tendency to conceit, the Tathagata is liberated through not clinging. 
So the Buddha is asked, have you got any views at all? And the Buddha says that he has seen the five aggregates and seen them arising and seen them passing away. All right, so it's not really a cosmology. These other guys, they were telling you, you know, how the world works. You know, it's these seven bodies and a sword cuts through somebody's head. It's just the sword cutting through. Buddha says, no. He says, take a look at the world. You can divide it up into five categories. The physical category, the initial reaction to a sense impression category, the mental category of identifying things, the mental category of thoughts and emotions, and the mental category of consciousness. And if you look at each of these things individually, you can see them arising and passing away. That's all that's happening. So rather than a deep explanation of cosmology or anything like that, the Buddha says, take a look. Notice the arising and passing of things. See the impermanent nature. It might be helpful for you to see the impermanent nature if you take a look at things, not in the way that you normally take a look at them, but divide them up into these categories. Now, these particular categories are not, shall we say, intrinsic categories. Uh, these are five categories that the Buddha used simply because they were useful ways to divide the world up. There's one physical category and four mental categories. We already tend to divide the world up into physical and mental, right? Mind and body, things like that. So peeling mind and body off from each other and looking at them separately is a way to, you know, try and deal with what's going on without trying to take in everything at once. If you start looking around at the physical as devoid of my consciousness or anything like that, you can start to see your body changing. You can see you know, the, the streets wearing out and the trees growing taller and all the things arising and passing away. Okay? And then if you start looking at your mental world, the Buddha says it's quite useful to divide it up into these four categories. The initial reaction to the sense impression. The reason he picks this is because this is where we get hooked. Remember, Four Noble Truths, Second Noble Truths, Dukkha is caused by craving. Now, why do we crave? Well, because it feels good. Right? So, the Vedna, which is usually translated as feeling, the initial reaction to the sense impression, pleasure, I want it, give me, and the craving sets in. So, this is a particularly important one to pay attention to. It's a very narrow area. Vedana doesn't mean emotions. It means your initial reaction. You hear a sound and either you like it or you don't like it. You see a sight. It's beautiful. It's ugly. Okay. Somebody tells you something, you know, your reaction immediately. You like it. You don't like it. All right. The next is perception. Identifying the things that we sense. If you look up here, you can see the bell, you can see a person, you can see a Buddha. There's a speaker up there and you look around, you see various objects. 
Perception is the ability of the mind to categorize things. Can everyone see the Buddha on the cover of this book? It's kind of small, but can you can you see the Buddha? Everybody see the Buddha? There's no Buddha. It's colored shapes. It's just colored shapes. You look up here, you see the colored shapes, and your mind has the ability to categorize the colored shapes as a Buddha. All right? This is what perception is about. The ability of the mind to take sensory input and then put some sort of label on it. It makes it much easier to deal with the world. Instead of just going, uh, uh, we can actually say uh, Big Mac with fries, right? or whatever we're saying. All right? So, perception. However, if you pay attention to your perception, your categorizing of things, you begin to see that, you know, it's not exactly always correct. It has its fallacies. And yet we take our perceptions to be the way things are. So this is another way to investigate. The fourth one is formations. Uh, and I'm going to skip that one and go on to consciousness. Consciousness could be said to be that which knows and is generally spoken of as six forms of consciousness, one for each sense organ, the five external senses and the sixth sense being the mind. So the part of your mental makeup that interfaces with the senses. Um, For example, once again, everybody look at the Buddha. Or if you can't see the Buddha, at least look at the book. Look really carefully. Can you see the Buddha's nose? No, probably can't see the Buddha's nose. But look carefully and see what the smallest detail you can see is. Now become aware of what's in your peripheral vision. Whatever was in your peripheral vision was there all along. Right? But you weren't conscious of it. You were conscious of what was in the center of your view. Right. As soon as you brought your consciousness out into your peripheral vision, you know, people popped in and whatever else you could see out there. Right. So that's what the consciousness bit is. So noticing the role of consciousness in what's going on. And then the fourth one, the one I skipped over, I usually translated as formations, often in the five aggregates translated as mental formations. Sankara is the Pali word. And I think it's probably best translated as concoctions. This was a translation I picked up from Santikaro, who was Buddhadasa's translator. The concoctions that we concoct of this world, all of our thoughts and all of our emotions, all of our intentional actions, these are concoctions. Sometimes you find Sankara with a shade of meaning, meaning karmic formations, or better translated, intentional concoctions. But they arise and pass away as well. So what the Buddha is saying when he's asked, what's your view? He's saying, look around you. See the world divided up into these five categories and notice the arising and the passing of the things in the categories. Stop looking at the world as solid objects and simply see what's going on. So the Buddha wasn't really getting into giving out a view. He was saying, take a look at the aggregates. 